Welcome everyone to the Explosion Ninja Podcast Extra. Jess, you're good at intros. I'm terrible at intros. Do you want to? I'm like away? intros. Well, today we are talking about a bunch of very, very exciting marketing things, including more AI. Although we will be reining in Tim, so he doesn't talk about too much. Um, a YouTuber crashing OnlyFans. We're talking about this week's video, a fantastic brand that we want to talk about for brand of the week, a marketing fail that we spotted, and our quite interesting question of the week, which is going to be about click-through rates. I believe, Tim. Is that correct? Yes, I also believe this. This is what <laughs> we're going to talk about. I've got to be honest, Jess, I'm feeling like a bit of a wally because I was supposed to have someone come and fit a new tire to the car this morning and uh, been waiting all morning, had calls, expecting them to come and interrupt the call, you know, like they do, and no one's turned up. So I'm like, okay, this is broken. Something, Something's happened in their process. This e-commerce thing is, you know, the booking system is obviously broken check the order confirmation and it turns out I was supposed to go to them now there's a lesson here they're gonna have to refund me and they're gonna have to go through all the aggro and admin of going through that process and it's all because not because I didn't read the ad properly it's because they bidded on mobile tire fitting keyword when that's not what they offer so I've gone and clicked on it booked paid everything and it's not even so I'm going to I'm going to mention that they might want to consider their negatives list. Yes. Um, and just see where it goes. That's totally fair. I had a similar situation actually, now that you've mentioned it, in that I am um, I'm looking for a new car, which is always a good experience. Was having a little look, what it's just, just weigh up my options, see how much my car might be worth, all that. Um, since I did that last night, I've had two phone calls, one that was at eight o'clock this morning from the same company, an email, a voicemail and a text. I'm not wow. ready to buy. Stop ringing me. I don't want to talk to wow. you. <laughs> and I actually text them back and said, please stop. I'm not interested. You've put me off your business. Um, stop it. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Bottom of funnel sales follow up, top of funnel traffic. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's just made me not want to not want to work with them. And I feel like we speak about that a lot in the videos on the main channel about making sure that you understand where your audience is at and treating them as such because else they might run away and hide like I am. <laughs> yes, meet them where they're at, not where you want them to be. Yeah, I love it. Exactly, love exactly. It. But now we've got our personal blunders or experiences out of the way. Shall we jump into the marketing news for the week? Yes. So you mentioned ChatGPT. As you know, last week, um, we'd been playing with ChatGPT a lot and getting really sort of into it and exploring all of the avenues. And the hype is it's not dying down, is it? Twitter has been covered in it, seeing it all over YouTube, all over TikTok. Everyone's playing with ChatGPT. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about how does this impact marketers? How does this impact people who are used to using, you know, we've got a lot of people um, who listen to this and who watch our videos who are, if not reliant on search traffic, they are, you know, they prioritize search traffic as one of their things. So trying to think about how does this chat GPT, all the open AI stuff impact search? Um, so I've been going into a bit of a rabbit hole with it. I just thought I wanted to share some updates on it because it's, um, yeah, I think the whole thing can feel a little bit scary. Um, and it turns out that Google's, uh, you know, Google have this Lambda project that they work on. So they, they bought this AI company in 2014. And, um, oh, I'm going to get stuck on the name now. They bought an AI company in 2014. They've been working with this stuff for, for years and years. And one of the engineers that had been working on the Lambda project said, actually, they estimate that Google's internal project is maybe two to three years further ahead than what we can see with ChatGPT, which I think was quite surprising to a lot of people because we ha we don't really see much from Google, right? The reason that everyone got excited about ChatGPT is because they released this tool and everyone's playing with it and everyone's getting super excited. To know that Google has something which is more developed is really interesting and piques a lot of people's curiosity. But the they said that 
basically there's three main reasons that Google hasn't already implemented this in its search engine. And these three are really important and they kind of give us a little bit of a hint about maybe some of the limitations of ChatGPT for a, uh, you know, to prevent it from being a Google replacement. So the first limitation is obviously accuracy. We've all played with ChatGPT or those who have have found that there are limits to its factual accuracy, right? Apparently I'm a, a hedge fund manager and philanthropist with I think four kids, which is it was certainly a surprise. So yeah, there's the accuracy piece. Google only wants to roll out something that's going to be completely accurate. The next uh, roadblock is the speed. So when you're using any of these software, the AI software, it takes a couple of seconds to get an answer back sometimes. And if you're used to using Google, obviously you're used to like speed being measured in milliseconds. It feels almost instant, which is what they're going for. Very difficult to get that with an AI. The third piece though, is mainly a cost uh, barrier. So Sam Altman, CEO of OpenAI, I think he estimated it's costing them about two to three cents to answer each question that someone puts into ChatGPT, which might not sound like a lot, but Google is doing billions of searches a day. In fact, I worked out in the back of a, a, a virtual napkin. It'd be costing Google about a quarter of a billion dollars a day to run, if their costs were the same, to run this sort of um, AI answer to all the searches that are going on. Because Google is very... Google is, uh, you know, has a lot of searches, a high proportion of Google searches are not monetized at all. So this is going to be a huge amount of outlay for Google to build something like this in. Now, of course, they're going to be able to pull a lever with cost. They're going to be able to reduce the cost over time. They're going to be able to improve speed over time. But I think what this does is it just shows us that actually, you know, Google is not sort of directly threatened by this in the short term. It gives us an insight into where Google is going to go, where search is going to go. But there are some real practical limitations that will, you know, we won't be all leaving Google in Q1 2023, because this is just going to simply be unsustainable, uneconomical to roll out. Now, that's not to say someone's not going to create an application using ChatGPT or OpenAI to recommend businesses or something like that, which is all stuff that, of course, we're looking at. But yeah, just sort of a, a bit of a, not a dampener on the hype, but, you know, we can chill out a little bit. This is going to be big, but maybe not Q1. Yeah, no, I totally, totally agree with you. We've also had a comment on the YouTube live stream um, from Simon saying, how will Google clamp down on the use of AI generated content? And I think sort of finding out about Project Lambda, that's, that's, mm -hmm. I was like, there's a lot of letters in there that look like they shouldn't go together. Um, but. <laughs> You know, Google are aware of the implications that this could have in terms of like misinformation um, and whatnot. And with the helpful content update, you know, Google did include some information in there about AI and, you know, how they're going to be sort of policing that and making sure that things are safe. Now, obviously, there is some limitation to that because quite often AI content can actually look nearly the same. And if you're smart about it, you know, you'll be using AI content in conjunction with a content marketer to make sure that what's being put out is high quality and that is correct. Um, so that's going to make it a lot more tricky for Google to kind of identify what is made by artificial intelligence and what isn't. But I think the people, they, they want to give people quality and they want to give people legitimate results. And the type of websites that are just going to churn out loads and loads of not checked AI content, Google are going to be able to spot them a mile off. Um, but I think obviously if it's being used correctly and in a high quality way, it won't be able to be um, to be spotted as easily. So that was a great question, Simon. Thank you. Yes, it is. And I think you made a great point about the helpful content update. I think at the time we saw the helpful content update as being a very direct sort of uh, attack or warning yeah. about AI generated content. Some of the wording is really key. Yeah, um, completely. I'm just on the page now. 
we want to ensure that more original, helpful content written by people for people yes, yeah. in search results. Like they're actually being very specific. We do not want AI generated content ranking. And this is one of the first updates I can remember where Google is set up since like the Panda Penguin days where Google isn't saying if you pump out AI generated content, we're not going to rank that content. They're saying we might downgrade the entire website's ranking. So this is a penalty. This is a punishment yeah. levied on sites that, you know, are just spewing unaltered AI garbage, basically, which, you know, we it's a good job they've got this out because it would have unlocked the floodgates, opened the floodgates to an unparalleled amount of spam otherwise. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, another point that I just wanted to cover as well on the AI stuff, I saw this great post from Mark Ashwell on LinkedIn um, discussing how it's interesting that it seems like everybody's heading to our AI for creativity um, rather than, you know, dull administrative jobs. And, you know, people are panicking and saying, this is going to take our jobs, but then almost the same people are then kind of going to those creative tools um, and sort of training them up. And I did think that was a really, really interesting point. And yeah, it really surprised me that um, people have gone to it straight away for creativity rather than more menial stuff um, mm. that we could be saving time on. I just wanted to know if you had any opinion on that, Tim, at all. Yeah, I, th I think that's a really great point. It's we, uh, I think a lot of the AI, the, the teams behind the AI see AI as a really useful sort of sidekick to handle some of the sort of cognitive load yes. of repetitive manual tasks and i think i think ai gives us a different type of creativity doesn't it because it's not necessarily true creativity i guess true creativity is different difficult to define but it's piecing together lots of things that it's already seen out there and, and combining them into one place which i guess is sort of sort of creativity but it's a, a different type of creativity we just recorded a video um last week testing ai versus human excited about this one. on a bunch of different digital marketing tasks and it was really interesting how uncreative the ai could be if it was given very basic prompts one of my personal bugbears on a lot of the criticism i've seen of the ai tools doing digital marketing tasks recently has has been that people give it incredibly um dull prompts <laughs> write me a five blog post for an e-commerce store yeah right? And they're like, ha, ah, look at it, it's struggling, these are all generic. I'm like, dude, your prompt is absolute garbage. If you say, <laughs> write me five prompts for a, you know, write me five blog posts for an iPhone case store, you're going to get trash. If you say, write me five blog posts for an iPhone case store that prioritizes premium materials over price and makes incredibly robust cases, and we want to answer people's objections about environmental impact, like it can do that. So I think the output is only as good as the prompts. Yes. A lot of people are just feeding it rubbish and then laughing as it squirms and struggles. But you know, you feed any human rubbish, you're going to get rubbish. I was going to say, so, 100%, yeah. 100%. And we've just had another comment saying, you know, do we need to upload articles weekly so that we have a chance to rank? And I can imagine things like this are the reason why AI content is becoming popular because people feel like they do need to be just churning out content. And it's perhaps back in the day, this was the thing you needed to be doing. You needed to have the most content. But in answer to that question, no, you don't have to be getting articles out weekly. You don't need to be relying on AI to generate um sort of low quality content it's better to put something out that's longer and higher quality that takes longer than put something out that's just done quickly so yeah don't worry about needing to turn to ai to get all your content out as soon as possible because yeah take your time it's fine 
For sure. You have another piece of news, Jess, that I... has missed my radar completely, which it's... is why I love you on this show. <laughs> I did. I want to preface this by saying that I did say, I'm not sure if we can talk about this on the podcast, but it's actually such a clever example of somebody really, really knowing their audience and then using it to their advantage. And this person has a reputation for knowing that they can do this and then getting their desired results. So there is a YouTuber, gaming YouTuber called Markiplier, very, very, very popular. And um, a few weeks ago, he said to his fans, if you get both of my podcasts, he has two, both of my podcasts to the top of um, Spotify charts and Apple charts, I will make an OnlyFans. And, he's, and if you don't know what OnlyFans is, uh, it's somewhat of an adult content website. That's kind of the niche that it's found itself in. And, you know, he knows that he has a lot of um, fans who would like to see that kind of content. Um, and even though, you know, he specified it would be tasteful, et cetera, et cetera. And as a result, both the podcasts got to the top of Spotify and Apple and they crashed OnlyFans on the release. Um, and wow. I just thought that was absolutely hilarious because OnlyFans isn't exactly a brand new platform. It has a lot of users. You know, it's been going for a while. Um, and it was also interesting that they weren't prepared for the amount of traffic that he would get. Maybe he wasn't even prepared. Um, and, you know, on top of getting the podcast to a good place, he's also using all the OnlyFans money for charity. Um, and I just thought it was an incredible example of really knowing your audience and thinking outside the box to know what will get attention on your product, which in this case was the podcast. Um, and I just mm. thought that was really funny. And I'm not saying by any means that you need to be doing this. But what I'm saying is, is that if you really know your audience, it's absolutely fine to think outside of the box and do something that maybe other businesses in your, like your competitors wouldn't do. Um, whether that's just targeting more specific keywords because you've seen a lot of your audience tend to ask you those questions, even though you haven't seen your competitors writing about it. You know, there's all sorts of different things you can do. Um, but I just thought this was a really funny example of how that can be done to an extreme and how it can work really, really well. <laughs> yeah, I love it. And and it has fun at its core, doesn't it? This is like a fun, this is an adventure thing. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's, it's, it's brilliant. I'm, it also doesn't it just illustrate the power of community as well how youtube like like you say only fans only fans is a serious deal this is a big this is a yeah. you know multi-billion dollar company and for a youtuber to be able to crash it by sending traffic there stuff doesn't crash these days no. you've got an idea yeah, like, what's going on that yeah is, it's extraordinary it was it was ridiculous um and yeah it was a lot of trending a lot of discussions around it quite a few big publications reported on it as well which i just thought was really funny and it's it's another example of how you know the age of the influencer or the youtuber is definitely not going anywhere i don't think and we'll probably see new right. new faces new content styles but at its core it's still a really obscure example of influencer marketing where the influencer Absolutely. is also the business which yeah really really great which um yeah it ties in really great to your next point talking about salesforce tim it does yeah this is so i saw a tweet this week about salesforce they released their um, income statement and some people have picked up on the fact that salesforce is spending about 50 times it's net profit on sales and marketing. And there's a whole big discussion about what is going on here. This is absolutely ludicrous. This company is making billions and billions of dollars and there's a tiny, tiny margin. There's lots of discussion about, you know, is this a conscious decision, whatever. But the thread kind of went into a really, into really interesting territory and, and sort of showed me something I haven't really thought about. So Salesforce is a, you know, B2B uh, CRM and sort of business application uh, company. And the customers often aren't the people who you know hold the budget right so they're 
you know, there's some middle manager who's deciding to get Salesforce for the team, and then they are getting the budget from somewhere centrally. And Salesforce has this annual conference, Dreamforce. And if you don't know about Dreamforce, it's wild. It's huge beyond belief. They take over the entire San Francisco convention center. It's absolutely massive. Some people were making like ludicrous estimates about how much it was costing to put this thing on. I think the highest I saw was $500 million a year. That can't be right. But anyway, they get people like Fleetwood Mac and Metallica and U2 playing. And I've always looked at Dreamforce and thought, this just, what are they doing? Why are they doing this? But one of the threads that came through this um, Twitter thread was that these middle managers, they would never cancel Salesforce because they knew they could get tickets to Dreamforce each year from their company. And it was going to be wild. Someone said it was like an adult summer camp. They're going to have the time of their lives, go and see these amazing gigs at this amazing scenario and like all the flights and everything. They love Dreamforce so much, even if there were better products out there, they weren't going to cancel. And it made me think about this idea of experiences and I remember Dan Kennedy um, used to be a big fan of sending like a little gimmick with an offer. So he'd sell a lot to like dentists or whatever. He'd sell like marketing information to dentists and he'd send like some little quirky thing like a no BS button or a little bull or something like that. Anyway, these people would absolutely love it and they buy it because of the, the little statuette or whatever, the little toy he was going to send. And yeah, it just made me think how sometimes the thing that we think we're selling is not the thing that we're selling. The thing that we think is retaining is not the thing that's retaining. And that as marketers, we need to be aware about what dis like how our customers are making those decisions and making sure that we're not saying, you know, everyone who buys Salesforce is buying it for because they're going to get money or because it's going to make their life easier. Actually, they might just be buying it because they saw their friends going to Metallica gig and they want to do that too. So it just made me think and, and reevaluate my opinion of the sanity of running something as ludicrously um, lavish as Dreamforce each year. That is so funny. So I was making a joke when I said, oh yeah, that totally ties into what I've just said about something totally different and chaotic because I'd seen you know you say about the 50xing their net profit and saw the graph and immediately I was like Tim can explain that to me on the podcast I'm not <laughs> reading any further and then you've just explained it to me and I'm like I did not expect that to be what you were about to say and that is so so interesting that they've created this experience and seen the benefits of it and just been like yeah all right let's just keep keep doing it and there must be more benefits to it other than you know people who go will keep subscribing to us but it's just something we talk about all the time which is your existing customers are very very valuable you already have mm. them they have to go through a process to cancel you know they're already making that commitment and if you can do things potentially not spending 500 million on a yearly event <laughs> but if there are things that you can do to keep them engaged and keep them interested in your business i think that's a really how that is just fascinating like i said did not expect you to say that at all um <laughs> Incredible. Yeah, if you, if you can't afford to get Metallica, you know, maybe just get, I don't know, one of the Red Hot Chili Peppers <laughs> just or something one. like that. You don't need to go all the way. Like the level underneath Metallica. Yeah, that's, you just, that's a good you place. You pay per band them. member, right? That's that's obviously... Yeah, that's, I think that's how they work. Completely. Yeah. <laughs> Completely. So our podcast would not be complete without talking about Twitter, since this is the Twitter and AI podcast. Um, <laughs> but um, the news in Twitter this week was basically Twitter is potentially extending their character limit to 4,000 characters, um, which is a 1,300% increase in the number of characters it can use on Twitter, which might sound really silly if you're not a Twitter user. But one of the things about Twitter has always been the character limit. You know, it was 140 and then they increased it to 200 and another number. I just thought it was really strange, a really strange decision. Um, paid for blue ticks were also back, but now, if 
you're a certain type of business or a certain type of person, you have a different color, which kind of defeats the objective. Everybody can get a blue tick. Um, but yeah, very, very strange. It's interesting to see what happens next. Um, and I think the lesson here really is that sometimes what you do is enough. What you offer and your main mm -hmm. thing is actually enough. You know, Elon said he wants it to be the everything app. And yet we've seen Instagram constantly try and do this, trip up nearly every time and have big creators, you know, some of their biggest creators on the app saying, stop doing this, stop pushing videos. This is the photo app, leave it there. Um, so yeah, don't try and be everything to everyone. And Twitter, I think are gonna keep tripping over and having to learn this lesson over and over again um, until they realize that actually what they had before was fine and they just needed to hone it. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you can understand how Elon's looking at like the WeChats of the world and thinking no one's built that in the West. Like that would be a great thing to do. But then I can't think of too many social apps or even technology companies full stop that have wildly succeeded outside the area that kind of made them big. If we think about it, yeah. like Amazon's still struggling. It can't, Amazon still can't really sell fashion. Like it's no, tried for no. years. And it's, and it's always struggling, even though Amazon is an absolute e-commerce powerhouse, it's never quite unlocked some product categories. And, you know, we see TikTok trying to get into shopping and then they shut the shopping thing down yeah. in the UK and then they're going to try again in the US. And it's like, sometimes it's really difficult for these apps to go beyond the thing that makes them popular. And it's difficult to know if that's execution, if it's arrogance or or what really yeah, but yeah agree. i mean elon is not disappointing with the entertainment of this no. thing that doesn't look like it's slowing down so so. i said it's a gift that I'm keeps on giving but it's not a very pleasant gift actually um it's like a gift that you don't want that like, just keeps knocking on your door and being like i've got you another one and we're like no stop please please just don't it's like spam, oh, i love spam the chaos post. um i love the chaos yeah it is it is fun to watch but moving on from marketing news we put out a new video yeah. yesterday about um digital marketing in 2023 five questions that you can sort of ask yourself about your marketing and five areas that you can probably make some improvements um and my main thing that i sort of took away from that tim is i was just curious what marketing advice you would give to someone thinking of starting a business in 2023 and i know that's a big question that's a big question but if there was like one thing that you think yeah. people could take what would it be and there is there is absolutely one thing and someone in the comments has said if you guys could use a pay monthly website design company as your example your wish adam is totally granted so i think as we look at you know with all of our videos everything that we do we're looking at every digital marketing channel seo content ppc social email whatever all of it's getting more competitive the barrier to cutting through is getting higher the barrier of quality is getting higher if you want to rank on the first page of google in 2012 you could buy a website called get to the top of google.com and you would get to the top of google when someone typed that in like it was so easy and today it's so much more difficult you've got to put so much more work in so much more time energy and money so everything is getting more difficult thank you for coming to my ted talk um, <laughs> but but i think the way that new businesses have to attack a, a landscape like this that is becoming more mature is by finding a message that legitimately resonates because if you've got something which is legitimately resonating with an audience on any of these platforms you will get more traction right we talked about google wanting to reward quality over quantity exactly the same even on high velocity platforms like tiktok so quality over quantity always wins so the advice that i would give to any business starting in 2023 is think about what you're going to sell and make sure you're starting from the customer this is so basic and sounds so surface level but it's it's so difficult to actually follow people start businesses from my observations with 
we've reviewed tens of thousands of people start businesses because they love something because they're obsessed with something they get really into it so web how to market a brand new business if you're a pay monthly web design company as an example often people will start a web design company because they love web design and they want to do more of this and they want to be their own boss and all of this type of stuff i think it's the wrong approach to do it from that yes it's important that you enjoy it but you will find enjoyment in anything what you want to do instead is figure out what is the problem that is currently not being served or it's being served in a suboptimal way. So starting a new business saying monthly, um, pay monthly web design, right, maybe people really need good websites because the standard has raised for, for you know, web design and, and conversion, but they don't want to have to pay out massive, you know, amount initially, or maybe they want a web design company that's a partner in the business or something like that. So that'll be how I'd approach it. Think about Right, who's my target customer? Where is their pain? And how can I fix that pain? And it might lead you to start a way more boring business. There are going to be so many organic skincare companies that are started next year. There's going to be so many baby clothes companies that there are going to always be so many photographers because people love photography. And that's cool. But if you want to build a business, you should really start from the customer first. And that will often lead you to, you know, doing something that's maybe a bit more boring. So you know, I made this mistake as a musician, I made a drumming business because I love drumming. Well, it turns out there's only a very limited market for that thing, particularly if you're a fairly average drummer, what I should have done instead was say, Okay, what's the need that I want to fill and then build that. And the reason this is a marketing lesson is because then when you run ads, your ad is going to cut through, you're going to get higher click through rate than your competitors, because you've actually found an angle, you have found something of value that your competitors aren't going to offer, you can get more cut through on your organic content, you can get more cut, cut through on social media, you'll get more cut through on email, you'll have a higher conversion rate, because people actually want what you're offering. So that's my advice. It's a fairly long winded way of saying don't start something just because you love it start something because you know that there is a demonstrated need for it and that people will pay money for it. Absolutely. No, you've, you've nailed it. And it's quite nice because I think that very much ties in um, with my brand of the week. But I definitely think it's, it's totally cool if you love website design, but you need to find out what the need is and what the gap is in website design. We're not saying that you, you should just throw that idea in the bin. We're just saying right. that you should you need to find really what sets you apart from everyone else. Um, and I think yeah. that's super, super important. Um, before we hop on to brand of the week, which like I said, is very, very related to what you just said. And um, we've had a question on the YouTube live asking, do you believe in working with influencers? And this also ties in really well with what Tim just said. Um, I saw a interview recently with a business owner who said that every single Kardashian posted about their product and they had no sales from that, which I find absolutely in inconceivable. I don't think that could yeah. possibly be true, but if it was true, I think then you have to start taking steps back and think, okay, are their audience the same as mine? Because maybe they weren't. Maybe, you know, even though people like the Kardashians show a lavish life, are their followers people who have a lot of money or people who aspire to have the same money as them? That's the number one thing you need to think about. Followers are much more than, you know, location, age, gender. You need to be thinking about why they're following this person and, you know, how they got to that in the first place. And you also have to be thinking, maybe your product just isn't quite right. And maybe it's not good. Maybe it's positioned wrong. Maybe the pricing is wrong. Um, you know, because if you get high profile people that big, someone's going to buy. But yeah, influencers, if you just throw money at influencers, you're not going to see success, essentially. Yeah, I'll be honest, if you've got all of the Kardashians posting about your products, and you sell nothing, then I'd 
Firstly, I'll be questioning the analytics. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, I'll be questioning the product because yeah. that is I mean, that is a dead loser, right? Their audience is so broad. But I think there's another, another piece of this. A lot of people are falling out of love with influencer marketing as a category mm -hmm. because now the influencers are, there's like a, a curve in any of these, right? We saw it with Google ads. You start very, very cheap. The, the, the media doesn't know how much it's worth. And that was exactly the same with influencers yeah. a few years ago where you could get influencers very, very cheaply relative to their reach. Well, that is that those days are gone, right? Influencers definitely yes. know how much they're worth. And some of them have massively inflated perceptions of how much they're worth. Now, let's not say all of them are, let's not say influencers bad value, but there's less of a delta there between how much you can make from this and how much an influencer is going to charge you because they get so many pictures and they've kind of established, you know, what they can charge. I think one really interesting trend going forward is rather than paying people for their influence so paying them for their audience we're seeing a lot of brands we looked at figma doing it a while ago paying creators rather than influencers for the content that they create yeah. so sort of paying a creator to get user generated style content rather than paying an influencer who will create content but you're paying them for their influence they're paying them for their for the exposure to their audience so i think that's an interesting area to look at and particularly with platforms like tiktok which is the tiktok twitter and ai show um <laughs> particularly with platforms like twitter uh, sorry like tiktok we see that there are so many super creative creators who are really good who make fantastic content for brands they don't necessarily have a massive audience yeah. so they're not necessarily valuable from an influence perspective but as a content creator paying them to do some stuff for your feed could be a great move so that would be an area I'd look yeah at. absolutely absolutely agree now I keep teasing this brand of the week so I am going to um hop onto that now oh sorry just seen a question about the sims which is definitely up my street um what i will say yeah so um just to speak on that one very very quickly so the question was the sims franchise has totally nailed down how they use creators to market their products sorry it wasn't a question it was in fact a statement but ea has their ea creator network i believe it is and anybody can apply to be part of that network and they will create awesome content whether that's good building whether they're great at making sims whether they're good at making stories um actually i think they're called game changers maybe they change the name of it i don't know um but they will work with these people to create awesome stuff that then they can repurpose and they'll host events with these people to make sure they have the tools they need. And they have sort of taken this influencer thing and kind of combined it with what Tim was talking about to make something of its own thing. And, you know, every year I'm, I'm very much tied in with the streaming community and I see so many people really hoping to get onto the Game Changers platform or the Creators platform. Um, you know, it's a really big thing. People are really pushing, you know, they're practically doing like class president type you know vote for me or this is why you should have me or vouch for me in the comments of this post you know and it's it's yeah really really interesting they've created a desire to be a part of that you know rather than just paying influencers to do it the influencers want to get involved from the the ground floor and it's yeah really really mm. clever thanks thanks for mentioning that um lydia because that was a really really great thing to talk about <laughs> you love it don't you jess I yeah do. you've been waiting every week for someone to mention the sims <laughs> completely completely um with that in mind i've actually been really good this week and chosen a b2b brand for my brand of the week if you would like me to continue with that unless you had anything oh, else to say. I've, I've never heard I, yeah this is new on the radar as well yeah. i love everything i can see yeah completely new on my radar as well and actually i came across it because i was using the service and so i think it's really interesting so the brand of the week is called happy returns it's a company that i think has just been bought by paypal and it is essentially an e-commerce returns company um and now i think 
what's been happening for a long time is that people order stuff online and then it's wrong and then they package it up and either a courier comes and grabs it from the door or you will go to like a corner shop or a, a somewhere and just drop it off um, and for some people if they're not at home all the time or they have busy schedules neither of these options are great which a lot of people would think well you know they're taking it from your home that's really convenient and actually when you think about it it's not and um, some research by the National Retail Federation. Nope, that's the wrong bit. I was going to talk about how there'd been studies into how um, people aren't happy with returns um, experiences, which isn't something I'd ever even thought about. Yeah, I've been disgruntled with it, but I never thought it was a widespread thing. I just thought I was being a bit pedantic about it. And yeah, Happy Returns has decided to fill that gap by encouraging stores to sign up to be hosts for Happy Returns and having a host bar in their store where people can come and bring their returns in person and drop them off which you might just think that's the same thing that you just described but the difference is that you get your refund immediately rather than having to wait for the package to go from wherever you've dropped it off or if they've collected it and arrive at the warehouse which could take however long you get your refund right away which is one of the huge selling points um, which I was really impressed with I mean you might have had the same thought well sorry Tim go ahead no, no, I wasn't going to say anything. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm just thinking. Yeah, yeah, Calls yeah. Going. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> see, this is what's what's so fascinating about it. And you might think, okay, why would Staples, for instance, which is one that's, you know, um, they sell stationery and whatnot, why would they sign up to take returns from Gymshark? And the whole thing is that, you know, they're finding that when people go into these stores to do their returns, they're then spending in that store. So these stores are getting footfall because of another business by making that business's life easier. And then they're getting more customers which I just thought, because I was like, I don't understand what's in it for these host businesses. And turns out there's actually quite a lot in it. And, you know, a lot of businesses and even smaller businesses who might not be, you know, they don't have the same clout as Gymshark are able to almost connect with those customers, which was really, really cool. Um, mm. So there was that as well. And then the other thing, which I just thought was awesome about it is that it integrates with platforms like Shopify, um, and when people go to return, let's say they have a shirt and it was too big and they want to order a smaller one, or maybe some people would just be like, I'm just going to return it, whatever. But when you do it via happy returns, the customer is prompted, you know, how can we solve this? And they'll be offered if they're, the thing that they said about it was that they, it was too big. The next page will offer them, would you like to order it in a smaller size? Or if they said it was the wrong color, they'll say, here's the five other colors we have in stock. Rather than straight away going, here's your refund, they're sort of bringing people back into that cycle um, and making mm. suggestions based on their preferences. And I was like, it just keeps going. It's just absolutely fascinating. And it's a perfect example of like we're saying, we've got business doing returns, which is not a new thing. You know, you can do returns via a whole load of different areas, whether it's these little Amazon lockers or every comes and picks a package up at your house and then throws it over the wall behind them. Um, you know, there's all these different things. And they were like, how can we make a business that can profit off of this huge returns industry um, and help businesses and help customers? And they found that niche. And that's what really appealed to me about them. I thought that was so, so interesting. It is. And f I don't, on the one hand, I'm like, this is a genius solution yeah. to a really painful problem. And it's exactly what we're talking about, Way When you want to start a business, you don't necessarily, you wouldn't be like, oh, you know what I'm really passionate about? What do I love? What do I imagine? What would I do if I won the lottery today? What would I spend the rest of my life doing? I'd spend it processing. <laughs> yeah, returns. yeah, completely. But no one would ever say that. But this is a great idea for a business because returns are so painful for so many companies. 
I do think that there is a bigger issue with return rates in general. You know, yes. we see, you know, a massive company like Primark in the UK like won't sell online because of the returns they've got. You know, it's just prov- it, damn it, their cost, they just can't sustain it. And yeah. there are other e-commerce um, fashion retailers where 30% of their stuff is coming back. Like that is a, potentially an unsustainable business model. And then they can't often just resell this stuff straight away. So they have to build the cost of the returns into the product. So huge inefficiencies there before we even think about carbon footprint and stuff like this. So I think at some point, someone is going to figure out a problem to stop, uh, figure out a solution to stop this problem at source. Yes. But until they do that, until we can visualize the item in our homes, until we have like AR that enables us to try stuff on properly, then this seems like a really great approach to how do I fix something that's really painful? And it's a messy, difficult problem yeah. as well. For people thinking about starting businesses, you'll be tempted to go for like, oh, well, this seems really simple. This is, no, go for the stuff that's icky, that's gross, that yeah. no one wants to play with. Like manufacturing, like some weird thing or like processing returns is the unsexiest thing in the world. Yeah. But guess what? From a marketer's perspective, advertising stuff like this is great because there's so little competition for it. If you want to advertise like some, you know, vegan beauty products, absolutely carnage you know huge cpas you're going to go negative on the first purchase stuff like this you'll be you'll be profitable with you know on 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 your first acquisition so yeah it's it's a super interesting business absolutely love it definitely definitely i've never even thought of that tim that's a very good point and i know there are some businesses like e-commerce businesses that have more accurate size guides or they will you know if you're logged in and you've inputted your measurements then it'll make recommendations for you which obviously are some attempts to reduce the rate of returns. But um, you were saying about the numbers. I think, yeah, there's some information from the National Retail Federation that I nearly read out at the beginning that was totally irrelevant. Um, But apparently consumers returned $428 billion worth of products in 2020. um, And that was just over 10% of retail retail sales. And the cost of returns to businesses as a whole was 101 billion. So yeah, like you said, it's making it easier to do returns when actually maybe businesses want it to be difficult (laughs) yeah right exactly and you see a lot of businesses now who are you know reducing the free returns thing they're making people jump through hoops you want to try and return something to lululemon freaking good luck right you got to negotiate with the ups hotline on your own to you know difficult so there are companies that are trying to get around this um there's been a couple of questions in the comments Mm -hmm. and we try not to do too much sort of reactive stuff but there's a couple of questions which sort of tie into this, right? So we talked there about how you'd market a business like this and the fact that it's a new solution mm-hmm. to an established problem. So this returns to something that's incredibly painful for companies, but they might not necessarily know that something like this exists. So how would you market a business like that where you have a, a, a solution, but it's a brand new thing, like you're one of one. Um, one of our most famous sort of client exits was a software company that we worked with before the founder would e- had even had the, or I think they'd had the idea. We worked with them in their previous company. They came out, they started their own thing. We worked with them all the way through to a 26 million pound cash exit. And that business was the first in its space to do what it did. So that campaign had two phases. The first phase was we had to get in front of people that didn't think they had this problem or they didn't know that they had this problem. And then once we'd established that, you know, this thing was a thing and there was plenty of talk and people knew to search for it, then we could market it as as its, you know, as its primary keyword. But in the early days, your goal is all about raising awareness. And how do you market a business that someone doesn't know exists? Like, um, you know, Jess said this, or, or Jess has written in her notes that their blog content is targeting problems that people mm-hmm. do know they have. So if I'm an e-commerce brand, I know I want to reduce my return rate. 
I know I want to simplify my returns process. I might be thinking about outsourcing my returns. So I don't necessarily know that there's this solution. There's this whole network of returns people and all this type of stuff. But I do know that I want to reduce my return rate. Yeah. So if I'm marketing a business like this, I'm going all out on that keyword because that shows that someone has a problem. They are in pain. They're saying, help me, I need to fix this. And my article is the most in-depth, comprehensive article on how to reduce return rate. I'm starting the return rate podcast. I'm making videos all about how do we reduce this scourge of our business, this cancer in, in e-commerce? How do we reduce this return rate? And I'm going all in. I'm completely owning that term because I know that everyone coming into that is a potential customer for me. And then in the course of that process, while I'm teaching them about, like, here's some ways that you'd reduce your return rate. And by the way, you're always going to get a certain amount of returns and we make that certain amount more you know palatable we take that stuff out of your hands so click here to sign up for our whatever so yeah that, that's how you do it it's no there's no point trying to sell to people that don't even you know they don't even feel like they have well, no, i'm going to rephrase that if you're selling to someone that doesn't even know they have a problem at all right you're selling like a black mud face mask I don't know I've got a problem with that, so I'm not searching for that. But you might want to show that on social, right? That's an interruption piece of advertising where it's like, oh, you, you're trying to trigger an impulse purchase. But if you're trying to sell something that's a bit more sort of meaningful, has higher um, higher cost, then that is a, you know, what's the problem that you are solving, even if they don't know about your solution? Yeah, yeah, completely, completely. I think um, the other thing to think about as well is if you have come up with an idea and you're like, we're going to make this thing because I need it make sure that other people need it too. <laughs> do some market research, talk to people, ask people online, get people together and just show them. Be like, what do you think of this? And if they go, literally yeah. never needed that in my whole life, that's a waste of time. Then you sort of avoid spending all this money on developing something that isn't isn't great. And this is a good example for yeah. even established businesses. You know, we see all the time that companies try and do something new um, that just hasn't been researched. And then they're like, why did this fail? Yeah, because you didn't speak to anyone about it. Right. I think it was John Carlton who used the, the copywriter. We had him on the podcast. I think he, when he was testing copy, he'd go to a bar yes. and he'd read his copy out to like random people. And the response that he wanted wasn't like, oh yeah, that's great copy. The response he wanted was like, where do I get this thing? Yeah. He actually wanted to be able to sell them on. And it's exactly the same. Like if you're explaining your business to people who are potential customers, you don't want them to go, oh yeah, that sounds like a cool idea. You want them to be like, wow, that sounds sick. Like, wh where do I sign up? Like, yeah. if you could do that, wow, can you actually do that? I'd really, really love that. That's what you want. Um, definitely, yeah. definitely. Um, yeah, that was really good. That was a good, very, very good discussion. Um, but we are going to move on to our marketing fail of the week, which is actually kind of relevant to a bunch of stuff we talked about today, which is to do with something called Board Ape Yacht Club, which if people don't know what that is, um, there's going to be a lot of words that I'm about to say that are going to be confusing and that's fine um but there's definitely a, a marketing story at the crux of this even if you don't understand it but the board a yacht club creates something called nfts non-fungible tokens which basically artwork kind of that's also on the blockchain related to cryptocurrency and do you know what i know a lot about this but it's so hard to explain without really yeah. spending time to explain it you know and it's it was born from a place of trying to give copyright and give, you know, the same level of, I don't know what to call it. You know, the Mona Lisa, you know, that that's an original, yeah. you know, that it's worth loads and you're going to pay less if you buy it from a little shop that sells prints of art. That's what they were trying to do. And then it got really out of hand and got really shady. And now most of the discussion is about the negativity and the negativity in this instance is to do with celebrities, influencers being very heavily involved in the project, promoting, 
um, these pieces of artwork and not disclosing that they were paid to do this. Um, and also things kind of going round the back and paying people in kind of a not really obvious way. And there was just a lot of, a lot of shadiness. Um, and it seems to have, there's been discussions, I've been following it for a couple of years now, discussions from the moment these people promoted this about whether it was legitimate, whether things were being above board. Um, and yeah, that was kind of, it's all sort of come to a head and come mainstream now in terms of these lawsuits. So yeah, thoughts, Tim, you look quite flabbergasted. Oh mate, uh, don't get me started. I think crypto marketing has been fascinating to watch. I remember when Absolutely. I moved down to London um, at the start of lockdown and Luke and I would go, he likes trains. So we go on the underground trains and saw all these ads for crypto everywhere. And I thought it was absolutely fascinating that so much money had poured into this space so quickly yeah. and the marketing expanded to fill all of the gaps. And it was really interesting to see how loose regulations were around crypto marketing. There were people making, you know, um, unproven claims, like big unproven claims on the side of buses and on trains and stuff. And influencers getting involved, influencers promoting stuff without the proper, you know, designation of it being mm -hmm. ads and stuff like that. And there was a sense that, wow, all of this is, you know, whatever happens to crypto, all this advertising stuff, someone's going to take issue with this at some point, the ASA and all mm -hmm. these, you know, the organizations that are responsible for policing ads, this is, this is going to kick off. Um, someone in the comments is saying, always do your own research. These celebs will shill anything. And I think the real danger when something like this happens, where you know, cryptocurrencies or whatever are being promoted by celebrities is that this damages the influencer marketing model for everyone. If somebody is saying, always do your own research, these celebs will shill anything, that damages, right? And, and, and you know, you're right, they technically will, uh, or some of them will, but that damages it for everyone else. Because that, you know, if you now see that Madonna was yesterday posting some Bored Ape Yacht Club <laughs> thing, and then today she's posting some like skin ointment, well, does the second one look like the scam if the first one felt a bit like a scam like it it yeah I, yeah yeah it's just messy it's messy and icky and yeah. i think if you're going to stand out in this space it's quite easy to stand out by being completely reputable by showing you're working out yes. and just doing stuff above board yeah that's exactly what i was going to say sort of on the other side of the the coin is that you just don't be shady like there's rules in place and big huge businesses like this know that there's rules in place and they know that celebrities are supposed to you know say when they are um you know doing a promotion and it is at the same time on the plate of the influencers to say i'm not doing that but there's so much stuff there's so much that goes into it it's, it's to do with their agent and you know if there's the agent and then the agent saying to the celebs yeah you can promote this on your show to millions of people we've we've covered it it's fine you don't need to say it's an ad we've got it handled then there's all these other things right because i think these all these celebs involved are all part of the same management agency and yeah. the main thing that i took away from this is that there's been so many shady people and shady practices across the crypto in industry in the last year that it's caused so much damage because there are bad players unfortunately and because of things like there's even you know Board Ape is one of the sort of more established ones who hasn't really mm. had that many scandals really compared to others. No. You know, they've people have got what they asked for. They haven't put money in to get nothing that, you know, and it's been fairly steady. I think it's crashed, but because the whole of crypto has, so everybody's going to, you know, go down for however long that is. Um, but it's, yeah, there's just been a lot of bad players that have caused, unfortunately have caused that crash, ruined it for everyone. Um, and it's like, mm. 
Tim knows my opinion. I'm not a fan of the crypto space. I'm not a fan of the NFT space because of the way that it's being used. You know, I'm still at a point where I do a lot of research, watch a lot of content, and I'm still like, what's the point other than to scam people? And that shouldn't be the message that we're getting across. And if you want widespread adoption, you know, my mum's not going to look at this or other friends that I have aren't going to look at this who aren't watching a million videos like me and think that's reputable when they constantly hear about scams and bad things. And yeah, it's not good. <laughs> It's not good. I think this reminds me of, you know, there are certain industries that we've worked with over the years where there is a sort of general bad reputation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, PPI was one, right? So we worked with when PPI was kicking off, whenever that was a few years ago, we worked with some PPI companies and got fantastic results for them. And it's absolutely going to be the same sort of thing with crypto. So at the moment, crypto has like this bad uh, sort of negative cloud around it. That doesn't mean that all crypto businesses are doomed. It doesn't mean that, um, you know, crypto as a concept is doomed at all. It just means that the threshold for trust is that much higher. So you just need to do everything that you possibly can to... Yeah. I, I'd address some of these concerns head on. You know, is it a scam? Might be something that you might want to have on your homepage and you're going yeah, to answer that completely. Completely, that completely. It's just that the bar is raised. So yeah, it's, it's uh, the whole the whole thing is just combusted. And I think, yeah, yeah, yeah it, it's just interesting to watch. Absolutely, absolutely. And it is, yeah, it's definitely got to a point where now if you did want to do something legitimately, you're going to be considered to, you know, not be, not be um, legitimate at all. Finally, yeah. for today, we have our marketing question of the week, which I believe you prepared, Tim, if you would like to go ahead with that one. Yes. Someone asked a great question on YouTube about their emails. So we talked about emails and email being a sort of key pillar still in 2023. One of the things that you absolutely need to be doing is automating email sequences and all this sort of stuff. And someone asked a great question. They said, I've got, I think, 1400 on my email list, but this applies to email lists of any size. And every time I send an email out, I'm only getting 10 opens. Well, I'm getting 10 visits on my website. So, you know, what's going on? Where's this thing failing? I thought it was a great question. It's also a very common question. And um, when you're looking at your email deliverability, you basically want to follow the line to see where it's breaking, right? When you're looking at your email marketing performance, you want to follow the line to see where it's breaking. So the first thing to check is how many of your emails are actually bouncing? Like is the 1,400 people or the 14,000 or 140,000, however many you've got, how many of them are actually legit? Are you getting hard bounces? Are these email addresses no longer active? The second thing I would look at is what's the open rate. So if you're getting an open rate of say 20 to 35%, typically that's pretty good. You can get open rates even higher. We've got clients that are getting open rates so over 70% if they've got a really hot list and they've got a really sort of strong brand that people really connect with. If you're getting a really low open rate of say like sub 10% or something like that, that can imply that there's some sort of deliverability issue, either you're landing in promotions tab or you're landing in a spam folder or the list is just really old. They've forgotten who you are. They don't really care about the thing anymore. If you're getting decent opens, you then look at click-through rate in your email. So if you're getting a decent click-through rate, like say 10, 20, 30%, well, that shows that the thing you're actually offering in that email is enticing enough to get people to act. If you've got a really low click-through rate, it just means that the thing you're offering in your email isn't exciting enough for people to act. So you just got to follow that chain down to work out where it's broken. But I think there's a lot of lessons for all of us with email marketing because the temptation is that we just send emails out to our audience and we never really take the time to go through the stats and look at, okay, what are people actually liking? Yeah. Let's compare my click through on this email versus this email that took a different approach and find out what my audience is really engaged with. So I just thought it was an interesting uh, conundrum and something that is very timely as we come up to Christmas on our email Absolutely. inboxes. Are stuck Absolutely. I've unsubscribed from so many email lists this week because there's definitely <sighs> been some, you know, where they've 
forgotten about us for the year and then all of a sudden they're just appearing in my inbox i'm like i don't even remember who you are um so i think yeah that's that's a really really great point if you do have a marketing question by the way you can send us an email at hello at exposureninja.com with the subject line podcast extra and drop your questions through and we will answer them on the podcast it's also important for you to know that if you're having trouble with your own marketing you should definitely head over to the exposure ninja website exposureninja.com slash review we will give you a very cool very in-depth review of your website and your marketing. And there are also tons of resources on our website as well. So if you had any questions um, that haven't been answered today or things that are more specific, head over to our website and head to our blog to have a look at those. Anything else you would like to add, Tim, before we close out? No, thanks Jess, as always. Thanks everyone for tuning in. See you next week. See you next week.